Welcome to the Green Team Speaks To, the podcast for the Paulson Institute's Green Finance Center. Hello, I'm Felicia Wu, Director at the Paulson Institute. Today, I'll be speaking with Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, the CEO and Chairperson of the Global Environment Facility. He was a former Minister of Environment and Energy of Costa Rica and is an internationally recognized expert on environmental policy, multilateral environmental negotiations, and financing for nature conservation. Carlos Manuel, welcome to the Green Team Speaks To podcast. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you today. I also wanted to offer my belated congratulations on your appointment as the head of the Global Environment Facility. Well, thank you so much. It's my real pleasure to be with you and everybody who will be hearing us. Um, certainly. Well, it's, it's certainly been a busy fall with many things to talk about. So if you're ready, let's dive right in. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Great. Can you tell me about the aims and the goals of the Global Environment Facility? Your work covers a wide variety of areas from biodiversity to forest, chemicals, waste, and land degradation uh, make the list as well. What are some of the main projects you have been working on this year? And what are you hoping to accomplish in the short term and maybe medium or long term as well? Well, thanks. Um, the Global Environment Facility is turning 30 years uh, this year. So I'm, I'm really delighted and honored leading the, this organization. That 30 years ago, as a young kid, I, I, <laughs> I put my eyes on because it, it was a kind of a very innovative idea. 30 years ago, uh, nations, all nations of this planet agree on the need to generate consensus on how in a collective multilateral way, we were going to tackle all the many different environmental related challenges. And um, you, you probably heard about the Rio 92, 1992, we had our first uh, sustainable development uh, uh, summit where um, we agree on a sustainability agenda, which was called Agenda 21. Mm-hmm. We agree on the, on the real conventions, on one on climate, on biodiversity, land degradation. Unfortunately, we never agree on one on forests and fresh water and the oceans, where, where, which were things that we were talking. But a very strong multilateral um, process came around the need of um, tackling global environmental issues. By then, countries were already talking about um, financial support uh, on a more systematic manner. During the 80s, most of the 80s, there was a lot of financial support on a bilateral level and also from NGOs and and philanthropic organizations to developing countries. And by the early 1990s, the World Bank, UNEP, and UNDP, these are UN uh, nation uh, agencies, agreed to, to, to try to create a mechanism that can mobilize in a more comprehensive and holistic manner resources from developed nations into developing nations. So this kind of piloting phase of GF plus the Rio Convention was the early area, starting point of this organization that now turns uh, 30 years old. So the mandate um, for the GEF is very clear. We are the financial mechanism for the implementation of the environmental conventions. And we are obliged uh, to generate um, global environmental benefits. As simple as that. Uh, we, we respond to uh, five uh, conventions 
and the real conventions plus the chemical conventions. And, and the way we operate is by designing and implementing projects that respond directly to the goals and targets of the many different environmental conventions on processes that last four years. We are at the end of four year cycle, the seventh, which we call it Jeff seven. And, uh, and we are uh, just beginning to work on the proposal uh, for JF8. The proposal for JF8 is totally aligned with the international environmental negotiations. Probably you have heard that um, countries in the Convention of Biological Diversity may agree on protecting 30% of the planet. Uh, well, we are the agency that will be helping the countries uh, protect 30% of the planet, land and ocean. You heard about this climate target of um, being below the 1.5 centigrades um, by 2050. Well, we are the, the fund that will be helping that and also on, on climate adaptation. So our mandate is very clear to do that. We've been able to, in these 30 years, to mobilize more than $20 billion directly with co-financement of around $150 billion. And we design and implement projects that respond again to those conventions in more than 150 countries. Today, Jeff in Jeff 6, we are implementing Jeff 6. We are finalizing uh, the design of projects of Jeff 7. Very soon we'll begin the implementation as an average. A Jeff project uh, lasts four or five years. Actually, in Jeff 6, we have a combination of around 700 projects in 143 nations. Wow, certainly great work you have been doing at Jeff, and I hope that the Jeff 8 plan comes together soon with larger numbers to, to help with more projects in more places. Well, um, yes, and thanks uh, for that, but let me share with you what do we have in front of us. First, the Jeff, as I said, is great. 80% of our project has been ranked very positively, so the rate of success is high. Nevertheless, we've got a sustainability issue. Our projects should uh, generate conservation environmental outcomes that are permanent in time. Let, let me give you an example of what I mean. We help countries create, protect biodiversity and be more resilient to climate change. Uh, protected areas is one of the most useful tools to protect biodiversity and adapt to climate change. We have helped countries design thousands of protected areas. As a matter of fact, if we add all protected areas that we have helped build in developing countries, probably they are the size of Brazil. So this is huge. Mm -hmm. um, and we do that, but we want them to be sustainable in time, in time permanent. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, sometimes government change, circumstances change in governments, and a protected area that was created today in 20 years may change. And we have seen that protected areas that we have created in countries with the full support and endorsement of countries 20 years later are being threatened by those same policies from those governments who look for oil and gas, mineral resources, or they've come up with ideas like, you know, why we need to keep this protected area if this is a great place for our agricultural expansion. So we need to, in order to consolidate, be able to bring the financial economic element of that. The Paulson Institute is in the cutting edge in, yeah. in putting the right economic information 
in the environmental investment because for many people, particularly decision-making, fluid protected areas is kind of a cost. They see it as a cost. We, we, we need to set aside large areas of land for conservation because of the moral imperative, because we need to protect biodiversity. And yes, of course, it helps us producing fresh water and give us um, climate stability, but that is not reflected in, in the economic uh, balance sheet. Mm -hmm. uh, that is why now more than ever, we need to, to manage the decision-making processes about the different development options with the right economic information on the environmental side. Oh, well, the Paulson Institute has told us that, that uh, for every dollar that you invest in nature conservation, there's a return of five to eight dollars. So those are the kind of information that we need to have as we develop projects that can, because they will give us the sustainability. At the same time, that we are uh, more effective in creating mechanisms by which jobs and incomes can be generated associated to the creation of protected areas. So this is just one example of the elements of uh, sustainability and, and permanence of our investment, which are extremely important. We do a lot of projects. Those projects need to be permanent in time, need to generate socioeconomic benefits, and needs to contribute to the country's social and economic goals. And now more than ever, we have the data and the information to add these elements to make those uh, GF projects and those who are related to the GF investment more sustainable in time. Mm -hmm. that's, that's certainly one of the biggest challenges, I think, facing the fund, as you mentioned. Are there any other challenges that you'd like to, to elaborate on? Or, you know, in, oh, yes, in the... uh, well, let, let me get to the big one. Oh, oh, that's not the biggest one. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That's oh, the easy, okay. that, that is the easy one because oh, that we got, easy one. yeah, that's the easy one because we got so much alignment of data and information now that is on the economics of nature conservation and climate change as opposed to probably five or 10 years ago. Mm. So let me, be, let me tell you the big one. Okay. The GF allocates or invests on an annual base around $1 billion, by far the largest environmental fund. But, and, and you may think, well, a billion dollars is a lot of money. Yes, it is a lot of money. Not but, enough. If but if you compare it with the global financial gap in terms of biodiversity, in terms of climate change, it's not enough. So I can be a very good manager and very good convener. And I can, I can you know, let's look into the future. I can double the size of our fund, $2 billion that will never be enough to move the needle in terms of the system change, the transformational changes towards a more sustainable pattern of consumption and production. I'm realistic, which means that we will increase definitely our trust fund. We will uh, expand our capacity to help countries, but that will never be mm -hmm. um, the way by which we can solve these global issues. So this means that we need to be more strategic on how we do those investments. Our investments needs to go from first uh, aiming to solve a problem rather than going from aiming to solve a problem rather than understanding how to address the root case of the problem. That's one, yeah. one topic. And the other one is that um, without resources, 
we need to generate two things at the country level. One is mobilizing domestic resources more efficiently and generating more policy coherence at the country level. Let me, let me explain a little bit the first one. ODA for um, climate and nature conservation on an annual basis, just 20% of what humans invest in nature conservation and climate change. 80% of uh, what is invested in this sector are the public funds, public expenditures, what governments channel to their national budget. So if uh, we want to be able to have an impact in, uh, in our aspiration to move from this irrational neoplastic economic model into a circular one, we need to concentrate our efforts in mobilizing more efficiently what countries are investing through their public expenditures because they do it in a very inefficient manner. And I can explain that if you want in detail. That's one topic. Mm. The second topic has to do with policy coherence. Coherence means that you know all of your decisions respond to a very clear objective and all your actions are uh, aimed into that objective. Unfortunately, when we see a government, that is not the case. There is no country in this planet that invests more money in protecting nature than, rather than in destroying nature. And unfortunately, most of the countries of this planet, through their development policies, through their uh, public investment, invest in activities that contribute to loss of biodiversity and climate change. Uh, let me give you the example of uh, uh, energy mining. Well, there's a lot of policies that promote oil and gas exploration and exploitation and mining. Well, all of those activities contribute to biodiversity loss and climate change. Mm -hmm. And the governments put a lot on that, even though on the other side, they are investing in protecting nature. Today, humans invest 142 times more resources in activities that, that generates deforestation than what we invest in forest conservation. So that's a good, good example of policy incoherence. We need to help countries in their national development plans, in their sectoral plans, in the operation of their institutional framework to be more consistent, more coherent. It doesn't make any sense for the Jeff to continue supporting efforts to protect nature in one country if that country continues consistently invest in economic activities that destroy nature. That is the big, big challenge that we have in front of us. How, with limited resources, we can have an impact in that decision-making process, in that mobilization of financial resources that can begin doing the shift from this irrational decision-making process uh, into a one that gives us hope that we will advance in our aspiration for sustainability. Well, I think, You've certainly brought a lot to think about here. I mean, this draws upon your decades of experience. And I think you've kind of maybe answered, you know, my next question already about kind of what you see has been the biggest changes you've witnessed over the past 30 years and, and what all needs to change. You were just mentioning changing the, the you know, policy incoherence that countries have. So I think if you wanted to add more to yeah, sure, others sure. that, I, you know, elements I, I that need to change. Um, yeah, I think that one of the biggest successes that we have generated in the last couple of decades is the overall global understanding that investing in nature shouldn't be seen as a cost rather than an investment 
into the future, we've been able to identify the environmental services that are key for human development and growth given by nature. And we've been able to value them, not just to put a, a value, but also to design policies, particularly financial policies that fully reflect that. And that is the beginning of something very important because at the end of the day, going from this neoclassic economic model that aims for unlimited growth without recognizing planetary boundaries and limits and moving from this system into a circular one needs a change on how we should be reflecting the negative and positive externalities from our productive sector. Today, pollution is free and you can pollute, you can destroy nature, you can contribute to climate change and there is no cost associated to you and your company or to you and your country. And as we look into the future, we need to be able to on one side, fully internalize those negative externalities and then on the other side, those who generate a positive externality, those who restore the landscape, those who clean a river because of their activities, those who keep a primary forest should be fully compensated for those positive things that they provide to our society. So the financial instruments, the financial decisions, the development policies, the taxation system should reflect those positive and negative externalities. I'll give you an example. We need to move towards a tax system where the tax burden shifts from taxpayers to polluters. Today, all tax systems are taxing positive things that we do in our society. We tax the income, we tax the salary, we tax the properties, we tax the transaction. Can you imagine how healthy our economies will be without any taxes on the productive things? Well, why don't we begin taxing those things which are bad for people and bad for the planet? That can give us, and we may have a hybrid system which can help us level the economic playing field so the private sector can really do big businesses in a healthy planet. Because I don't see the private sector doing big business, big businesses or good businesses in a uh, unhealthy planet, which is what uh, we will be having in a couple of decades if we don't uh, keep on taking decisions. So all of these elements were not there uh, 10, 15 years ago. So I, I see a, a, a lot of progress. So being able to monitor the socioeconomic benefits of nature conservation and climate mitigation is something that I do value and recognize as uh, of high progress in, in the last years. Some big ideas there with the with the taxation. But, uh, you know, I, I think... Uh, Drawing back on your tenure as the Costa Rican Minister of Environment and Energy, you had some of those great ideas as well, um, and and was a, you were able to double the size of the country's forest, uh, make your electric sector a hundred percent clean and renewable, and building a national park system to promote ecotourism. These are some great ideas that you put in place. Are there any main takeaways from this experience and? Do you see these as being applicable in, in broader conversations on tackling okay. climate sure. biodiversity? Sure. Yes, of course, sure. Um, I mean, I think every country is different, obviously, and, and the times have changed. Yes. But, uh, every, every country is different.
but humans but, so but humans behave behave the same the way same. <laughs> political and economic systems mm -hmm. transcend countries so mm -hmm. I, I i strongly believe that uh, there's a a lot that can be do very quickly L let me first say there's a big large number of countries which, which are taking the right decision and doing the great things there's a lot of countries that still have 50 percent of their land with force and um and those countries are, are not sacrificing economic growth because of that. That is important. You know, Costa Rica was able to double the size of the forest and go in a 100% clean in the electric sector because it created the right policies. We began phasing out the wrong policies and creating the right ones. We went from negative and perverse incentives into positive ones. Second, we, we created the right institutions with the right institutional framework, which is, this is very important. We got probably too many government agencies managing different natural resources. We got an agency for energy and mining. We got an agency for water and oceans. We got an agency for nature conservation. We got an agency for the soil management and production of food. I mean, too many agencies working with different ideas in the same landscape with the same stakeholders. That has proven not to be very successful. Costa Rica was able to create the right framework, mm -hmm. the right incentives. Of course, at the end of the day, those decisions are good if you got a society that strongly believe in the rule of law, in freedom and respect of civil rights, individual rights, human rights, and those were the conditions that we had in Costa Rica. Costa Rica went from being one of the poorest nations in the Western Hemisphere to being in the top three in terms of human development. A Costa Rican lives longer than the average Amer American or European and in a more happy life, probably with less income, but happier. So here's where you, you should ask yourself, which economy, which system is more efficient? The one that gives us longer life and happy life, or the ones who give you more income. Well, those, those are existential um, uh, and philosophical uh, questions that uh, you, you need to put in the table as you look into the future, particularly in, in, a, in a world that aims for a well-balanced relationship within the human systems uh, and the, the earth systems that support life in the planet. Because this is very important, particularly nowadays, that uh, I think that humans come to realize that COVID-19 is a wake-up call to all of us because of this dysfunctional relationship within humans and nature, our human systems, you know, the way we produce our food, the way we produce our energy, the way we live and consume is not compatible with the system that supports life in the planet there may be ways by which we can make it compatible. And that means changing that production consumption system. And this is the role of the Jeff. The, the role of the Jeff is to work in this uh, realm. And it is not easy, but I think that um, we have clear ideas for the long run. And the countries within the, the different environmental conventions are aiming for that, you know, pollution free world, um, carbon uh, neutral world, nature positive world. And, and we are the ones who can give the support for countries to develop 
the policies and to mobilize the resources in a way that we all together collaborate on a common vision. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pick just something you said earlier about Costa Rica establishing the right policies, frameworks, and, and institutions and, and, and incentives to, to make that shift. Um, and it also ties back to our, our report that you nicely gave us credit for. Thank you so much for that. And understanding that global financing gap for biodiversity. So it, my question is kind of, we identify a number of mechanisms to address this gap from financial instruments to leveraging private investment and policy-related changes. To you, what do you think are the most important transformational changes needed in government policy in order to close the gap? And are there innovative financing mechanisms that you think could make implementing you know, a post-2020 global biodiversity framework possible? I think that both of them, on one side, as I said, you need both, yes. Yeah, we, we need both. Uh, yes. Domestic financial gap will never be closed just by trying to put more money. There will never be enough money at the country level. Mm-hmm. So it's a combination of facing out negative investment mm-hmm. and perverse incentives, which destroys nature, and a combination of two things. One, mobilizing financial resources in a more efficient manner. What do I mean by this? Um, Believe it or not, at the country level, uh, countries doesn't know how much money they are investing in nature conservation. They don't know. Because because there is no uh, a single budget item that says biodiversity investment. You need to to hire an archaeologist and ask him, you need to go and dig in the national budget and try to find who is investing and how much is investing in nature conservation? It's not easy work. So we, we need to work with the ministers of finance and the budget authorities in developing this information. Otherwise, uh, you will never uh, be able to be efficient. This is the level of efficiency. When you come up with that data, and it will take us you know, quite some time to generate because it's not easy, you will come to realize two things. One, you're investing more money in nature conservation than what you previously thought. And second, those agencies that are investing financial public resources in nature conservation are more than what you previously thought. So you need to map that. When you, when you know how much the country is investing in nature conservation and which are all the different uh, government agencies investing, because this is much more than just the ministries of environment. These are many other ministries investing. Let me give you an example. Ministries of Agriculture, they do a lot of investment in nature conservation. They don't know it as I wish, or they don't reflect it or communicate as we wish, but they invest in organic agriculture. They invest in freshwater management. They work on restoration of watershed. They work on agroforestry systems. They work on sustainable cattle ranching. I mean, a lot of investment. All of that should count as a nature-related investment. So when when you know how much and who is investing in nature conservation, the next task is to align all of those investments with your national biodiversity action plan. Because as of today, only the investment coming from the ministries of environment are aligned with the national biodiversity action plans. So you need to bring everybody together. If you do that, the bang for your buck will increase many, many times. 
and your need for more resources will decrease substantially as you're using your resources more efficiently. That is one task. And the other task is that you need to generate new sources of uh, domestic finance. And that can be done by doing the green tax reform. That can be done by many other options where countries have a lot of experiences. Conservation trust funds has proven to be a very successful, high return investments in many countries. Investing in consolidating those endowment funds and conservation trust funds has proven to be very important. The tax on on fossil fuels can be a good way by which you can channel those resources uh, to those owners of forests who are keeping the forest and providing us with the upsetting of those carbon emissions. So that can be a good way, put a tax on fossil fuel and channel those resources into payments to the owners of our tree plantation forests and agroforestry systems so they can have a positive incentive to keep and increase biomass in those landscapes, generating our expected goals in terms of biodiversity and climate change. So these are ideas by which you can do much better than what we are doing right now. You have some fantastic ideas. And, you know, I think maybe just a quick follow on. These are all kind of maybe national level ideas. Do you have ideas for the private sector? I think the private sector, as we've mentioned. Yeah, sure. Private sector will go where the money is. And if Mm -hmm. protecting nature and reverting climate change doesn't allow them to make money, they won't go there. So, yes, we got a large number of enlightened CEOs today at the planetary level willing to do sustainable, but they do it because they got the vision and they got the commitment, but they don't have the financial and economic incentives to do that. So that means that only at this point, only 1% of the global private sector is willing to do something different. The rest is not there because the incentives are not there. So we need the public policy. Mm -hmm. When I was saying earlier in this conversation that we need to level the economic playing field, this is Mm -hmm. what I mean. We, okay. need to, we need to fully internalize those negative externalities. If you tax pollution, you know, the private sector will stop one way or another to pollute and will find cheaper ways to produce. If you pay them for the positive actions related to nature through many different financial options, they will do better. So it won't be until we do that. At the government level, we need to move towards a green national accounting system where pollution and degradation of nature can be fully reflected in the GDP. And those elements will help us be able to move the private sector big time in terms of scale in the right direction. Great. Thank you for answering that question. And so I guess I'll try to close here. We've already completed the first part of the COP15 and approaching the start of the G20 and COP26 gatherings. But then there's next year and your work, our work doesn't stop. So what is on your international gatherings wish list? Assuming COP26 will not deliver all that we need or want, but that there will be much more follow-up work in the next year with host countries for 2022 already, you know, being quite um, interested and vocal on climate and, and more so on biodiversity as well. What are some of the action items that we need in the very short term here? The second half of COP15 is beginning of next year, first quarter. What are the imperative action items for medium term? Uh, We'll have another COP. We'll have another G20 next year. 
So what are you thinking are, are imperative? Okay. I would like to see three things. Okay. Okay. One, I would like to see a narrowing of a big political gap. And this needs to happen. A political gap within the narrative, the discourse, the commitments of world leaders with their climate and biodiversity negotiators. There's a big gap. I constantly hear world leaders pledging and committing to the 1.5% to the 30%. But then at the very lower level, their negotiators of those same countries are saying that we will never agree on this 1.5% of that 30% if the North is not providing financial support. So I see a big gap within what leaders are saying and what their negotiators are promoting. So that's a very concrete element that I think it is very important. Second, when I talk about world leaders committing to these very ambitious sets of uh, sustainability uh, goals, we tend to believe that by just having the prime minister or the president of a, a country committing to that is enough. But this is just the beginning of a domestic process because most probably at the end of the day, you need to go through national parliaments and congresses and you need to negotiate with the private sector. Let me give you an example of Costa Rica. The president of Costa Rica is saying, we will um, increase marine protected areas and conservation of our oceans up to 30%. Costa Rica has done great on the land, has not done good on the ocean. We have only protected less than 2%. The ocean skis of the, the Costa Rican territory is 10 times bigger than the land, okay? It is extremely important wow. that we protect 30% of the ocean. Unfortunately, the private sector represented by the fishing sector is totally against any conservation action. I mean, any, there is no will to accept that with conservation, your activities can be sustainable in the long run. They see conservation as a threat. So we got the president saying that we will go with 30% at the country level that is not happening because the fishing the private sector is very much against. And those in the private sector which are in favor are not participating or not having an, an interest. So this is my second point. We need to invest a lot in those political negotiations within the executive branch with parliament and private sector. That is something that needs to have happen very quickly. And my third element, in order to solve on a sustainable manner, the global environmental challenges, we need global collaboration. I see a lot of nationalism tendencies in many countries where leaders and parties are promoting hardcore nationalism. That means first we and then the rest, or we are against anything that comes from the outside world. Those are uh, very difficult and challenging circumstances if we need a strong multilateral systems that works based on collaboration, that works based on common goals, but recognizing the differences, uh, circumstances that countries do have. So that is the third element that I believe is a very challenging. Certainly challenges ahead. However, we, we do not give up. We keep going with our work, right? <laughs> Definitely, yes. So I think maybe just to, to close here, what are some of the ways that you live a green or sustainable lifestyle? Oh, myself? 
yeah, yourself or recommendations for humans in general? Well, I, you know, it is very important now that more and more we're becoming a urban society to keep in touch, in contact with the green, with the biodiverse, with nature. Otherwise, we will lose a sense of meaning. And this is extremely important. And I, I invest a lot in spending as much as I can in real contact with nature. As you spend your time with nature, you are not only re-energized to do the many things that you should be doing or must be doing, but also it will give you a, sen- a clear sense of action. And I believe that this is extremely important. Invest uh, as much time as you can in the outdoors, mm-hmm. uh, walking in nature, enjoying the protected areas, enjoying the landscapes and the seascapes. Absolutely. I'm a big hiker, so I love that. Good for you. Good for you. (laughs) And hopefully in the future, we'll get a chance to visit Costa Rica. Very welcome anytime. (laughs) Please come and visit us. Thank you for joining us on Green Team Speaks 2. To listen to more episodes and learn more about the Paulson Institute's work in green finance, please visit us at paulsoninstitute.org. See you next time.